So after all the years of being shaped by God into a man of faith, the time had come for Abraham, who we've been talking about for quite a while in Genesis, to pass that faith on to the next generation. All right, and this is something that happens in all people's lives. It happens in our work life. It happens in families. Um, it's, it's just part of the human condition, right? New people learn things. They grow. They develop. They age. They pass those things on. Uh, most likely, whatever work that you are part of, whatever business you're a part of, there's probably a good chance there was someone who had your role before you and a person before them that had that role. Uh, some of you are on the, the front end of new industries and businesses, and that might not be the case, but in a lot of situations, that's the way it is. There's a heritage of, of kids that have gone through this school, you know, that started here in kindergarten when it was built in like 2004. All right, that was a long time ago. A kid that was here as a kindergartner in 2004 They've lived a lot of life already. They're out of school <laughs> by now, all right, in most cases. And that's part of what happens. There's this motion that happens uh, with, the, with the, the coming generations. And part of the responsibility that we have as people who move through this life, part of our role is to pass on, hopefully, the good things that we know and have done to the coming generations, Sometimes we pass on things to the generations behind us that I wish we didn't pass on to them. <laughs> but our, our, our goal is that we would be blessing the coming generations. And that's what we're going to see here in these couple of chapters of Genesis. So we're going to begin in Genesis 22, picking up in verse 20. And here's what it says. It says, now after these things, all the things that we've seen with Abraham, it was told to Abraham, behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz, his firstborn, Buzz, his brother, that's a great setup right there, Uz and Buzz, Kamul, the father of Aram, Kesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlath, and Bethul. Bethul fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Ruma, bore Teba, Gaham, Tahash, and Maacah. All right. Now, once Abraham and Sarah had moved away from their homeland of Ur, they never went back. All right. And if you remember um, where we're at in the story here, Abraham is over 100 years old at this point. And he left Ur back in maybe his 20s or so. So he's been gone a very long time, um, at least 50 years, probably more. And where they moved to, to the land of Canaan, was a long way away from their homeland of Ur. All right, I've got a little map here for you today to, to show you. Uh, again, just to remind you, over here to the, the left side of the screen, you see that where it says Canaan. That's the land of Canaan. And Hebron is where the story today is going to kind of center, right there in Israel, right near Jerusalem today. You see Egypt down there, Turkey up high, um, in this era, it was Assyria over there, Babylonia. And way over here on the right side, you'll see this two-letter word, Ur. All right? And that's where Abraham was originally from. Now, the distance from Ur to Hebron is about 600 or so miles. But it's straight across, as you can tell, a desert. This is a 
picture from Google Earth. So this is what it looks like today, just a big old brown desert. But in those days, it was still a big old brown desert, all right? And a 600-mile journey across the desert wasn't really possible because there were no gas stations, there were no rest stops, there were very few even oases, 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 yeah, <laughs> on the way. It wasn't there. Um, so, in fact, what would happen is they would actually have to go north along the green coast there of the Mediterranean Sea and then over to Haran and Nineveh and then drop down into Mesopotamia. So that journey would be over a 1,000 miles, 1,000 miles with no car and no airplane and no trains or buses. It was a long way to walk a 1,000 miles, right? Okay, so because it was so far away, they had never gone home. But at some point, news got back to Abraham and his family that his brother, who still lived over there in Ur, had fathered many children in those years that he'd been gone. And that information, you might wonder, why is this chapter even in the Bible? Why does this even matter? Why do these names even matter? Well, as we're going to see here in, in this next chapter, this information is important. All right? And so we pick up now in chapter 23, verse 1. And it says, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, that we just saw on the map, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Now, Sarah and Abraham may have been married for close to a hundred years. When you start thinking about this, that's a long time to be married. A hundred years, maybe a little over a hundred years. All right? She lived to be 127. And she had had Isaac, their son, at age 90. Remember that? We looked at this, a supernatural occurrence, a 90-year-old woman, a hundred-year-old father. So Isaac, at this point, if she died at 127 years, had Isaac at, at 90, he's 36, 37, depending on you know, when she died in the year. And after the family had mourned for her, they recognized the fact that they had no land that they could bury her in. They didn't have a funeral plot. They didn't have any land of their own because Abraham and his family, for all of these years, had simply moved in tents in different places throughout the promised land. As soon as God had called them through, they were a, a mobile people like the Bedouins of even uh, our modern era. And they would move around and they'd pick up their tents and move to wherever the pasture lands were good or wherever there wasn't struggle and battle. And they would go around looking for the places to be. So they'd never owned a piece of land in all of those years, in all of the things that Abraham had gathered. And, and we know that at this point in his life, he had gathered all sorts of, of, of lambs and you know, animals and livestock and all of this stuff, but they never owned any land, and they had no place to bury her. So in verse 3, it says, And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold 
from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. And Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron, the Hittite, answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of his city, No, my Lord, hear me, I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. All right. Now, you might wonder, what was all of that back and forth thing happening? Um, Abraham was honoring the customs of the people here. Um, the, the, the land, uh, the, the customs of the land and the people of the land. What happened there was a typical real estate transaction among this group of people. So when he talks about being at the gate of the city, that was the place where all of the business of the city was conducted. It was kind of like the courthouse or the, you know, a, a, a county building or something in, in different communities. And so Abraham goes there and he meets with all the people that have all met together at some council meeting. And he says, hey, I'd like to try to buy this piece of real estate. I want everybody to know that I want to do it. And then they go back through this customary, oh, no, no, you know, you don't need to do that. We'll give it to you. Oh, well, but if we were to give it to you, it would actually be worth this. And there's all this raising and bowing and all these things that go, this is all part of the customs that, that were to happen here, all right? But ultimately what happens is Abraham buys his first piece of property. Now, God's promise to Abraham that we've seen repeated throughout um, these chapters of Genesis was that he would both father a nation and receive a promised land, okay? The covenant was about a people and a place, a people and a place. The people would come through Isaac, the, the son that he and Sarah had, and the place would be the land of Canaan. And up until this point, like I said, Abraham had not owned any property at all. But here he buys his first 
tiny piece in the middle of Canaan, the land of promise. So now he had one son and one plot of land. He had people and he had a place. Now, let's look at chapter 24. Here's what it says. It says, now Abraham was old, well advanced in years. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. Now, a couple of years had gone by here. Uh, we know this because in chapter 25, we find out that Isaac is 40. I told you before, when his mom died, he was about 37. So two, three years have passed when this all takes place. And, and I'll tell you, this whole hand under the thigh thing <laughs> is a little strange. <laughs> I did um, uh, consult one particular Bible scholar on this whole thing, my dad. And uh, he told me the, the, the same thing that I said when I read this. I mean, that's just weird. He said, it's just weird. <laughs> we don't know what's going on here with this whole, again, it's a custom. It was something that they did here, all right? Um, uh, the, the best that I can describe it to you is that it just emphasized that this was a very personal promise being made. I mean, we don't go around grabbing people's thighs, right, <laughs> most of the time. Um, it was just this very personal hey, I need you to do this. This means a lot to me. You're close to me. This matters. Put your hand under my thigh, okay? I don't know. Maybe we'll start doing it that way. But that's what happened, all right? But Abraham understood that God was calling his family to be set apart from the inhabitants of Canaan. And he understood that this was very important that that's what would happen. And he needed to pass that knowledge on to the next generation. They weren't supposed to blend in with this culture. And Abraham knew that if his son married a woman from the land, it would be very difficult for him not to just assimilate into the rest of the culture. That would be good and it would be natural. But God was specifically separating Abraham and his family for a reason. Now this isn't always the way God works. In fact, what we see now down to our era is the kingdom of heaven is every race, every tribe, every culture. No matter the, the amount of money that you make or the amount of money you don't make, no matter the language you speak or the cultures you come from, we are one family. But at this point, part of what was happening was God had called Abraham from Ur and said, I'm taking you out. I'm putting you in a, a different place, a foreign place. Because I'm specifically, I, I want to reveal myself to you and your family. And ultimately, I, that is going to expand and grow. But I'm going to reveal myself specifically to this one family um, and this, this one nation at first. So the promise began with a very narrow focus that would one day encompass the whole world. Now, when we think about this and, and we consider what that must have been like for Abraham to have that understanding and realize, I have to pass this on to my son. I need him to understand that he has a specific call from God in his life, and he's going to live a little differently. 
things are going to be different for him. Things are going to be, uh, he's supposed to be distinct from the people that he lives around. And when we consider that, we realize also that as Christians today, modern Christians, we are called to be distinct in the world. We are called to be different. Our relationship to God is meant to be serious. We're called to be his people intimately with him. We're called to be his children. It's not just a a loose affiliation with God. It's not just that we're to be admirers of God from a distance. Um, One author wrote a book called Not a Fan, where he, he was distinguishing the difference between being just kind of a fan, like a sports fan, where you kind of cheer on God. Yeah, God's great. Go God versus being a follower of God, someone who's part of the organization, who's part of the team. There's a difference there. We're called to be God's family. Here's what the the Bible has to say about that. This verse will be on the screen for you. Peter, uh, the apostle Peter writes this in 1 Peter 2.9. He says, but you, speaking to Christians, he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He says, you specifically, you have a call on your life. You have a purpose as a Christian. You are to be the people that experience the light and the life that comes from knowing God. And then you are the ones that are going to take that light and that truth and spread it out into the world. Jesus said in John 15, 19, Talking again to his disciples, he said, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And then later in John 17, as he's praying for his disciples and speaking to God the Father, he says, Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. That's us. Don't take us out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I I have sent them into the world. So what we see here is we're called to remain in the world, but be different from it. There's going to be certain things that God calls you to that are different than what other people that don't know the Lord and in the way that they live life. There's going to be certain a uh, certain way of living in this world that is supposed to be distinct from the rest of the world. We have a different set of morality, a different set of ethics, a different way of seeing other people, a different way of seeing money, a different way that we work and invest ourselves and sacrifice. We are to be distinct people. And this goes all the way back to Abraham. And I know that sometimes that's hard. Uh, Especially when I was younger, this was especially hard for me because I really wanted to just blend the two worlds together. I wanted to say, you know what? I'd rather just, we all get along. (laughs) And let's just do what we need to do to kind of, you know, mesh this all together to have both. And to some degree, that's very good. But in other places, we have to understand what God's calling us to is sometimes incompatible with the world that we live in. He's going to call us to certain things. He's going to 
shape our relationships with other people in different ways that may not line up with what the world would, would have. But we have to understand, and what we learn through the scriptures, that this world is passing away, but his kingdom is eternal. And it, it's just, it's natural human nature, right? People want to fit in. People want to, to get along. And when we don't, when we don't fit in, um, sometimes what happens is we, we rebel and push to the other side, trying to say, well, I'm, I'm fine. I don't fit in this world. I'm going to do my own thing. But really what we're doing there is we're just looking for other people to build our own little subculture. And then we go, you know, have our own little group that is, you know, pushing against the mainstream. And that can be a real temptation for Christians. And you see it sometimes. And you see certain churches or groups of Christians that they're just like, I just want to close our world. And we're going to be Christians and we're going to do our little thing and we're going to live our little way and we're not going to talk to anybody else outside of here. We're not going to have friendships with anybody else outside of here. We're going to build our own industry and our own things and we're going to be self-sufficient. We're going to live off the grid and, right? You see these things that, that happen. We need community and we need each other, but we also have to remember that God is still calling us to love the people of this world. And to continue to bring that light and that life to others. We can't isolate from the world. And so we're working on always building community. We're building community at different layers. We're building this right here is a community of people. At our church, um, John just last week was announcing life groups, right? Small communities, even smaller than this. We're building these communities. But we're also building the broader community. We're surrounded right here. I remember um, several years ago, we sent out a flyer to one square mile from this place right here, just around us, one mile. You know, there's over 5,000 households. That number blew my mind. I can't really comprehend how many people live around us. 5,000 households, not people, 5,000 households live one mile from this spot right here. That's a lot of people. We don't have 5,000 people here at church this morning. <laughs> There's a lot of people right here in walking distance, right around us, and these people need Jesus. And so part of what we are wanting to do is we're wanting to be people that, yes, we're building a community here, we're being transformed here. I, I think our church does, does community very well. It's something that we emphasize and something that we lean into, and I pray that we will always be that way of building authentic community but an authentic community that's open and welcoming to other people, drawing people in, people that, that don't know the Lord. We have to have that heart of compassion and love for those outside of our community of faith. So Abraham, he knew that his son Isaac needed companionship. He knew that he needed a wife, but he wanted to set him up with someone that could understand the distinct difference that they were called to. And he wanted to spare his son the struggle and difficulty that he'd face otherwise. Um, and, and this brings me to, to one other point here. In 2 Corinthians um, chapter 6, verse 14 to 18, it says this. It says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? For what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? 
What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Now, when you read that passage and you think about this, you're like, well, wait a minute. You just told me I'm supposed to reach out to the community around me. I'm supposed to connect with these people. I'm supposed to build relationships and expand our community. But now here, is this contradicting this? Because he says, don't be unequally yoked to these unbelievers. So does that mean I can't have any unbelieving friends or uh, you know, relationships? I can't work for anybody who's not a believer? No, that's not what's being said here. All right? One of the things that is um, recommended and even commanded here, I mean, that's a pretty straight sentence there, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What's being described here is, is it's talking about our closest, closest relationships. And what Paul is trying to do is spare us some of the pain and the difficulty that happens when two people are coming together in a very close relationship with incompatible worldviews. And as a Christian, I've just told you, we have a view of this eternal kingdom that God is placing in our hearts. And we believe that this is how we're to live our lives. And that is incompatible with a world that is right here and right now. And to have someone that you're going to say, I'm going to live life with this person forever and always, and they have this worldview, and I have this worldview, you're setting yourself up for some real struggle. I'm not saying it can't happen, but it's a struggle. It's a real struggle. And I don't say this to make anybody feel guilty or condemned because maybe their significant other or their business partner um, are, are non-believers. I share this because it's important for us to see the difference and, and especially for as we move forward in life. If you are an unmarried believer here today, who wants to someday be married, the Bible recommends, <laughs> commands even, that, that, that you would marry uh, another Christian, a believer, period. Now, you might choose to do something different, but what the Bible tells you is, it's going to be hard if you choose to do that. And I got, we've got people in our church community that would stand up and say, amen. <laughs> That's hard. It doesn't work that way very easily. Now, will that fix everything and guarantee that you'll have a perfect marriage? Nope. <laughs> it's still going to be hard. There's still going to be struggle. It's still going to be difficulty. But I do believe it will give you the best chance to succeed. And that's what Scripture is teaching us here. And that's what Abraham is trying to do with his son Isaac. And so, in verse 5 of chapter 24, we've had this whole um, promise happen with the servant, right? And the servant said to Abraham, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? And Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, 
then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Now, it was good that the servant asked for some clarification here. Because this was a pretty heavy task. And this was a thigh task too, right? So this is serious. But this was a big deal. Because essentially what Abraham was telling the servant to do was he's saying, look, I want you to pack, pack your bags, get a team of some people together, and go travel a thousand miles by foot on a camel to a land you've never been to to introduce yourself as the representative of a family member who left over 60 years ago to a family you've never met and to ask if you could take their daughter to be the wife of a man they've never met who lives a thousand miles away. Oh, and by the way, you may never see your daughter again. I mean, come on. So of course the servant's like, what if she doesn't want to come? Because that makes good sense. Don't you think I at least ought to bring Isaac here along? Like, maybe that'll help. <laughs> Instead of just some weird old guy showing up and knocking on the door and say, hey, can we take your, your daughter? <laughs> so it's good that, that he brings this up. But Abraham knew that if Isaac went back there to the homeland of his ancestors and everything else, that he might be tempted to stay there. And again, Abraham knew very clearly, this isn't the what I'm supposed to pass on to my son. That's not God's plan. Canaan is supposed to be their home. A particular people in a particular land. And I do want you to notice here that Abraham turned his desires for his son over to the Lord. Did you see that there about the, the angel? He did what he could to set Isaac up to succeed, but ultimately, he left it to the Lord. And we parents should use this as our example. We should pray that God would send his angels before our children and lead them in the path, but we also have to entrust our children to him. You know, we live in an era now of helicopter parents and lawnmower parents is the new one that I heard. Um, see, the helicopter parent is still a little bit distant, but that lawnmower parent is actually mowing down the path for them to walk. Right? It's getting even closer. I, I understand that. We have high hopes and dreams for our children. But ultimately, at some point in their lives, our children have to make their own decisions. And, and we have to do everything we can to set them up to succeed, but then we have to turn them over to the Lord. They're His. They're not ours. They're His. And they have to make their own decision. And they have to do what they need to do before God. All right, and so in verse 10, it says, Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down. Uh, so that was a really long journey here, between 10 and 11. All right, a thousand miles on camel. <laughs> but in verse 11, And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water, at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. 
let the young woman, to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels, let her be the one whom you've appointed for your servant Isaac. By this, I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. And before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. And the young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please, give me a little water to drink from your jar. And she said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon, upon her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. Now, this servant knew that this whole endeavor was a long shot. <laughs> and he's been on this whole journey thinking, how in the world is this going to happen? But he does it. He goes through, he makes this prayer, and he remembered that Abraham, the man of faith, was convinced that this is what God had wanted. So you see here, Abraham's faith is actually being passed on to his household, even his servants. Now, notice that he didn't call on God as his Lord. He didn't say, my Lord and my God do this. He says, hey, Lord, the God of Abraham, you know, the one that you guys have that relationship, listen here to me. But this was still a bold prayer of faith. This was a big ask, but it was a, a big task because Grant camels drink a lot of water. <laughs> And so for this one woman to come down and say, all right, you got a lot of camels here, 10 actually. I'm going to be up and down this little path, dumping water, filling this trough until these camels that have been on a long journey have had enough to drink. That was a, that was, she was really sacrificing a lot for this. One little side note before we go on here. Guys, God listens to prayers of faith. He listens to prayers of faith. He wants to be known by people. Pray and keep on praying, even if you aren't certain of your relationship with God. Sometimes I think when we find ourselves in sin or distant from God, we decide, oh, I should probably stop praying for a while. God doesn't want to hear me. I need to just kind of hide in the shadows until this passes, and then I'll come back and pray. No, that's not what God is looking for or asking. Pray and keep on praying. God loves to hear a prayer of faith. It doesn't matter if you've walked away from God or if you don't know God. Pray. He's listening. He wants to have a relationship with you. And then watch and see if the Lord prospers your journey or not. That's what this servant is doing here. So in verse 22, it says, When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel, and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels, and said, Please, tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? This was customary for people that were on journeys to share um, in a house. 
And she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. And she added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Now, the, the combined weight of this jewelry, if we're not real familiar with shekels, so the combined weight of this jewelry would have been almost a half a pound of gold. Right? This is a lot of gold. These bracelets, this ring, um, it was a significant gift. And after this long journey, the servant immediately finds the right family. I mean, I don't think one of us could go travel a thousand miles in any direction and happen to stumble across this random family that nobody's heard from for 60 years, right? But the very first person that he connects with is the right family. Is that a coincidence? Or is that a God incidence, right? Um, The servant was convinced this is God at work. And prayer was key to the success. He says, the Lord has been the one that has led me in the way. And it caused him to worship and bless God. And in verse 29, it says, And Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister. Thus, the man spoke to me. He went to the man and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. And he said, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I've prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. And he said, speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master. And he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. And to him, he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell. But you shall go to my father's house and to my clan, and take a wife for my son. And I said to my master, perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, the Lord, before whom I have walked, will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink, and who will say to me, drink, and I will draw for your camels also, let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew water. And I said to her, please, let me drink. 
And she quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels drink also. Then I asked her, Whose daughter are you? She said, The daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, who milk aboard him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness, faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. Wow. I mean, it was pretty remarkable at the beginning, but it's, it's just continued to go that way. Now, I do want to point this out about Laban. Um, Laban, Rebecca's brother, he's going to be a prominent figure later in Genesis. Um, but for now, when we're first introduced to him, it's good to recognize that he's the type of guy who's quick to jump at an opportunity, especially one that might be financially lucrative. Basically, what happened is Rebecca came back and, and comes back with all this gold, and they're like, what's going on here? And she tells the story, and he's looking at that gold, and he's like, this sounds pretty good. Let's get the stables ready. I'm going to go meet this guy, all right? And so that's what happens. And then when he hears the rest of the story, well, not only that, this is like chump change to this guy. Whoa, there's something in this for us. And that's what's going on, and that's part of what, what is happening here. But not only was the servant convinced after hearing the story um, come down the line, Laban and Bethuel now believed that this was God's work. All right? Let's see what arrangement they come up with. In verse 52, it says, And when Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother, that's Laban, and to her mother, costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. And when they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. But her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman remain with us a while, at least ten days, and after that she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away, that I may go to my master." And they said, let us call the young woman and ask her. Finally, she gets a say in this, right? <laughs> and they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. So they sent away Rebecca, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, oh, sister, May you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young woman arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now, it was miraculous that Abraham's servant found the family, and it was miraculous that they agreed to the arrangement. But as, as they said here, the Lord was prospering the path. Uh, now, we also have to recognize, too, that arranged marriages were the norm in this culture, all right? 
This was the way it usually was done. So Rebecca expected that one day she would be shipped off to someone, all right? There was going to be some sort of an arrangement made. But this was still courageous of her. The arranged marriage might have just meant that she moved down the street with some other person from the extended family or at least somewhere in the region. I I doubt she had the idea in her mind, I'm going to move way away and maybe never see my family again. She knew nothing about Isaac, only that he was wealthy. (laughs) But I think that she would have found comfort in the way that these events had played out. And she was going to be an important person in God's plan. Verse 62, this is where we finish. You guys have done it. You've made it all, all the way through here, all right? It says, now Isaac had returned from... Be'er Lahai Roy, and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is this man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. We actually don't learn a lot about Isaac in Scripture. And he's one of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We don't learn a lot about him, but I think that this little snapshot tells us some things about what sort of a man he was and what had been passed on to him by his family, by his father Abraham, in his upbringing. It shows us here that he went out to the field to meditate in the evening. That's a good sign. (laughs) Usually people that make a practice of that kind of thing are thoughtful and aware. We see the same example of Jesus and his disciples and the believers in the early church making space and time to hear from God and be with God. I think that's important for us to notice. And, and make sure that we're taking time, making space in our lives to quiet our thoughts before God and listen for his voice. And we also see that he was a man who loved his wife. And that may seem kind of like expected uh, now, but in this era, not always. It was not always the case. Women had a very low position in the society. And a lot of times they were meant to make babies and take care of the house. And that was about it. But what we see here is we actually see here a man who loved his wife, cared for her, and we'll see that throughout their life. And this relationship was to bring life and healing to them both. So when we look at this whole story and we see all these events, and and as we are going to reflect on this passage throughout the week, I think it's important to consider what we are also passing on to the next generation. What are we doing? What are the decisions that we're making now that will impact the lives of those that that follow us? It it is okay to focus on the here and now, but it's also good to look at the big picture from time to time because there's so many things that can distract us and get us busy that sometimes we don't even think about what's next and what is going to happen in the future. Is our faith visible to others? I think Abraham's was. People saw the faith of Abraham, at least at this point in his life. Parents, are you entrusting your children to God? We already talked about that. Children, 
Are you making choices that will allow you to see God move in your life? As a church, are we doing all that we can to pass on faith, not just tradition, to the next generation? Is it clear to others what makes us as Christians a distinct people? Are you living in a way that people recognize there's something different about you in the way that you live your life? And, and then also, I think it's important too, as you look at the whole picture, to ask God, Lord, what part do I have to play in your work? Because what the Bible teaches us is that every one of us have work that's been set up by God specifically for you that will have kingdom impact. There is no Christian that's been called by God to come into a relationship with God that is supposed to just put it on neutral, a cruise control through the rest of their life and have no impact on the world around us. And that looks different for every person because God has custom tailored each one of you to reach others. And so every one of us has a plan, has a place um, that in God's kingdom and in the work of God. And I think it's important that we, we ask that. This servant, you know, we don't even get a guy's name. Some people say, oh, it was Eleazar that, that Abraham referred to way back when. We don't know because in this passage, it doesn't even give a name. It's just a servant who's doing all that he can for the, the will of God. And ultimately, it has a huge impact on God's people. And I just would ask you to be praying that God would continue to guide you and direct you and that he would bless us and use our lives in this way. Let's pray. God, we do thank you this morning for your word. And I know that there is a lot in this story for us to meditate on and consider. But God, I just pray that you would um, allow us to be people of faith that see you at work in our lives. I pray, Lord, that as we see you at work, that we would share with others about what you're doing. I pray, Lord, that we would be a church that passes on faith. I pray that we would be an an organization, a, a group, a body here in this place, in this community, that is a place of faith, a place of people that are sharing their faith into the community around us. Lord, we pray for this community around us here today. There are so many people that are lost and are looking for you right around us. Lord, let us get into the community and know those people and love those people and care for those people all the while being the distinct people that you called us to be. And I pray, God, that you would continue to allow us to grow and develop as we learn your word and understand what you're calling us to and who you're calling us to be. We pray these things for Jesus' name.